Hello and welcome to The Library is Open, a podcast where we discuss technology trends in the library community and the tools we use as librarians every day. I'm your host, Jesse Zero, and today we have joining us Mitchell Davis, Senior Director at Bibliolabs. Today, we will be talking about the power of creativity, innovation, and of course, our love for libraries. So welcome, Mitchell. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, to kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself and, as always, how you got into the library world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've worked in and around publishing since really late 1999. Um, and so I would say even early in my sort of publishing career, I was exposed to libraries and, and did some work with libraries, but was really more focused on the Indie, the kind of the emerging indie author community that was happening um, in those years. Yeah. Um, and in early print on demand technology and those sorts of things. But, you know, it did touch on libraries. And then, in, uh, well, that, we started a company that we eventually sold to Amazon um, that was called Book Surge. That company, Amazon, turned into Create Space. And it's really what is Amazon Kindle Direct. Uh, publishing now okay um, so that was sort of the that was sort of the start um, I did go and actually work at Amazon in Seattle for a couple of years 2005 2007 after that um, which was also an incredible learning experience and then I came back to Charleston and connected with the same partners that I'd started book search with and we started a new company called Biblia Labs um, Biblia Labs, when we first started, um, it really was sort of the first exposure we got to working directly with libraries in a new way. Um, we did a lot of uh, print-on-demand, historical mm -hmm. reproduction print-on-demand. So we worked with British Library and worked with other um, ProQuest, Gale, you know, folks like that to basically repurpose um, you know, old digital databases like Echo and Evo and things like that into consumer print products. And that business did well. We got it working pretty quickly. And then the iPad came out. And when the iPad came out, we you know, knew that we wanted to, to do something. So we approached the British Library, uh, who was, we'd put about 80,000 books in print for them. 19th wow. century books um yeah it was cool because you know i mean in order to take an old digitized book and put it in a print you really have to degrade it somewhat you know you have to post process it you have to turn it into black and white you know you get rid of all the cool coffee stains and you know yeah. that kind of stuff <laughs> um, so when the ipad came out we were like oh we already have all these books this would be a cool project to sort of start with and so we built an ipad app that would give folks access to all 80,000 of those same books. Cool. And as we were sort of, you know, ideating how to launch that, I, you know, we had this kind of, you know, accidental smart moment where we were like, oh, you know, most people who are going into the British library, they're coming into the library um, with a very clear picture of what they're looking for, you know? Um, they can write a call number down on a piece of paper, hand it to a librarian. The librarian can go into the basement, get that book, and bring it back up. Um, yeah. The people who are going to be using this app are not those people. So 
how do we organize this in a way that is interesting? So, you know, we started curating collections like castles and golf and sailing and things that just when people came, it was very easy for them to kind of visually browse into the content. And it, it was a hit. It worked. Um, it got launched at the Worldwide Developers Conference, got downloaded a half million times. It was a real confidence booster. So, yeah, we kind of took that experience and, and started building off of that and um yeah built built you know basically built a back end that would allow people to build their own apps and that has evolved into really what what biblia labs is today we eventually did put off that print business about five years ago and so yeah biblia labs has been a digital library platform only since then when did biblio board come into come into play because i think that's when i remember first Hearing about you, Mitchell, when I was still working, I was working in a library before I came to Bywater, um, and our consortium was really into um, self-publishing and and learning more about that. And I think that's when I remember first meeting you, or at yeah. least reading about you, or listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's you know, I think we, I mean, those early years, I, I can't overemphasize how naive we were <laughs> about. <laughs> how the library market actually works and yeah and those sorts of things so so we you know it was there was a lot of pivots and a lot of iterations to land yeah. where we finally landed i think our initial goal was hey let's make ebook public library ebook lending models uh more competitive with okay. the modern media experience so let's let's get away from Weightless. Let's get away from artificial constraints on digital things because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so I, we put a lot of effort into that. That's when we really built BiblioBoard, which was the the uh, sort of patron facing interface. Okay. And we and we went out and licensed a lot of books from traditional publishers um, in in this very sort of. Um, what feels like to a patron open access. I think that's been one of our mantras from the beginning is like anything from a library should feel like open access, whether yeah. a transaction occurred so that only people in a specific state have access to that content. And it feels like open access. That's mm -hmm. reasonable and understandable from a publisher standpoint, but the goal should be to make everything any library feel like it's open access and manage a business behind that and make it work. So, um, you know, that was, I think early, it was naive. I, you know, we kept that business alive. I still have hopes that, uh, and we still have States that, that support us in that it has never become the main part of what we do, but, but it, but we're still doing it. Um, yeah. But what happened along the way was like, we realized like, oh, if we stay with this strategy, we're gonna fail, you know, we're not gonna make it. And so, you know, I had background in indie publishing um, and, you know, I, I really, one of the people who's really key in our history is Ian Singer, uh, who at the time was running Library Journal. Okay. And, uh, you know, when, we, when I met Ian, I was like, when I knew Ian, for, uh, back a bit ways but when we reconnected he we launched a program called selfie uh which was the early iteration of what is now in the author project and and selfie was essentially a way for public libraries to make sense of 
the abundant output of self-publishing. Um, the libraries knew there were indie authors in their own communities. They knew there were good books that had been published by those authors in their own communities, but they had no time resources to sort of separate uh, separate the, the better books from, you know, I mean, when anybody can publish, the reality is 90% of it isn't something that a library would want to push to patrons. Yeah. Um, so how do, you, how do you find that 10%? And really Selfie was that. Selfie was uh, a partnership where we built all the tech and Library Journal brought the editorial expertise to say, hey, here are the best self-published books in your own community. Because then once you've identified those books, you can treat them completely differently. You know, yeah. It's a completely yeah. different situation. And you can bring authors into the library, you can buy the book in print, you can you know, help, help them on their, on their career. So um, that was really, I think, a pivotal moment because it kind of set us on this path of like what eventually, and I would say pretty quickly, landed with us going, what is something a public library can succeed at for the next 50 years on yeah. the, or 100 years on the modern digital landscape? And the answer to us was local content. Yep. Amazon can't compete with a library on local content. Neither can Netflix, neither can Apple. They've got a building. They're already converting the spaces into, you know, physical spaces to support local creators. Yep. And we can help them differentiate themselves and make them great at local content. And so the, you know, the, the selfie program eventually grew into the Indie Author Project program. Uh, we've built an entire network of contests, uh, regional contests around that. So that, cool. um, yeah, some things like that. So it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of grown into that. And then we've just sort of sidestepped into music and video and photography and art and all those sorts of things too. So yeah, that's kind of where we're sitting today. And we call that community engagement. Community engagement means a lot of different things to, to people. But um, and the way we define it is engaging your local creative community to be both an archive. As a public library, engage your local creative community to be an archive for the things being created locally and to provide elevation of the best things being produced locally, whether that's a book, music, art photography things like that so that's yeah. kind of where what we're doing now. I love I love that I mean you know there's we work with libraries all all over the country and you know just being able to see what they're doing locally you know whether it's with their community or with authors I just I love seeing that and now I love hearing what you're doing and I can't wait till we get to some later questions in the podcast to hear more about like what you're doing with music and arts and things like that because I believe the library is always evolving and and the stage I feel we're at now is really the center of the community and it it, it really evolves to more things besides like just the physical book or the digital book. You know, I see libraries that are doing community gardens, you know, they've taken story times outside now to keep people safe and I just love the you know how how everything is evolving and I'm I'm super excited Mitchell about what y'all are doing and 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 to hear more about this. Yeah, it's a unique institution because they have the physical space, you know, and I think yeah, such a digital opportunity, but but they just need, you know, I mean, great software is the minimum price of entry now, you know, and, yes. I, and I don't think, I don't think our industry has completely wrapped their head around that in terms of, 
you know, when you launch great software, that's actually when the work starts. And yeah, it's a lot about the culture. And as you, yeah. see, you know, it's the culture, it's the people doing the work, it's the level of engagement. It's all those kind of things that are, are, are easy to ignore, but really hard to get right day yeah. in, day out. Yep. You, you said it. Well, Mitchell, this takes us kind of right into our second one. You just, you talked about since the nineties, you've been working in some sort of publishing, print, digital streaming media. What fostered your love for learning and reading? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I still read old school print (laughs) books. Um, I understand the the distribution and the economics of eBooks, of course. Um, But I, you know, reading books has, has largely made me who I am. And, you know, it's a lot of accidental moments, just stumbling into the right book at the right time. Libraries have certainly been part of that. Um, Yeah. So I just, I I think, I think books are, are immensely important. Um, um, You know, and I, and I also just think I was, I was a bit fortunate in that I, I was, you know, I graduated college in 93 uh-huh. Um, started a small desktop publishing company, you know, back right when the first Power Max and those kind of things were coming out. So, I mean, I was basically 25, uh, broke with nothing to lose right when the internet happened. Yeah. And I had enough sense to go, this is crazy. <laughs> the first time I used Netscape, you know, I remember yeah. the first day I spent a whole day using Netscape 1.0, you know, and yeah. searching for stuff on Yahoo. And we were working mostly in tourism kind of things then and I just I can remember laying in bed that night thinking this is insane you know like and so you know I I don't know I I just it it all you know the book thing kind of came later once I you know met some folks and we sort of ended up going that direction but it was clear that the internet was gonna I mean I don't even think I could have conceived how much it's actually changed our lives at this point but but it was clear in 1995 or 6 that like this is going to be a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you've you've really embraced innovation and entrepreneurship throughout your entire career. What tips can you, you know, uh, suggest for our listeners to help them do the same? Well, I mean, it's. I mean, I guess one thing is it's always, you know, now that I'm, you know, fifty-one years old, I, I understand what there is to lose, I guess, in a way that I did not when I was 25. Um, And so I understand that, that it's, it's easier to start when, when you're young and and have nothing but time and and energy and, um, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's a full-time thing and and there's a lot, a lot at risk, you know, so you just sort of have to, to be, be prepared for that. But, um yeah i think just dealing with reality you know i think ultimately that that is is i mean in order to start anything you have to have some level of self-delusion i guess but (laughs) over time that that needs that needs to lessen over Mm -hmm. time as you as you get real information and you know real real facts about what you're doing and just trying to be honest with yourself and figuring out what you're good at and 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 what's really needed i guess is, 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 I think, the, the key. Keep believing. 
yeah, and keep and keep changing and try to build, you know, an organization that, you know, I mean, I know one of the things that's been, I mean, transformational, I think for me in the way I think about management and certainly transformation, transformational for Philly Labs is that we embraced Agile. You know, we had been using Agile on the development side for, you know, for, for some time, but we ended up embracing Agile for the entire company. And it just is part of our DNA now. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, I try to explain it that it creates a culture where you're never overwhelmed uh, and nothing is forgotten. So, you know, things happen quickly. They happen slowly. You rearrange those priorities every two weeks. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you create an organization where there's really nowhere to, to hide because there's like a full accountability all the time. So if you don't function well in an environment like that, you, you aren't in that environment very long. So I think over time, people who thrive on accountability and people who thrive on teamwork and collaboration stay other people don't yep and you end up with this really well-oiled machine uh, that that's that's fun to 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 do things with because you're not always feeling like you're catching up so i don't know that 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 to me you know i i i do some stuff on the side i'm on the board of the charleston digital core and i have this project it's a program for middle school high school parents and uh-huh. students, teachers, uh, called how a software company works, and it, it it kind of demystifies like that you have to be go to code camp in order to have a job in a software company. That there are a lot of jobs in the software company. Generously, twenty percent are engineers. Um, you know, the more Amazon does their thing, that becomes less and less. Uh, so there's a lot of things there to do in a software company that have nothing to do with whether you're good at math or science or put ones and zeros together. And um, a lot of that is trying to teach agile. It's like, you know, you break your life down into, you know, three columns, <laughs> you know, what yeah. you're working on now, what, you know, and it's just, I think a radical thought process change that, that just makes, I don't know, makes things more fun. Can we have a whole, can we have a whole podcast on this, Mitchell? Talk about what. Yeah. What, but the yeah. person you should invite to that, the person you should invite to that podcast is our ex COO, uh, Jessica Duggan, who is a ninja at, she's our, she was our operations, but she oversees, she really is the, the glue that holds together the tech and the business side. You know, you awesome. have to have someone you have to have. So anyway, I throw her out there as a great candidate for that. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I love. I love talking about that. I mean, if um, Brendan and Nate, who started by Water back in two thousand and nine, you know, keep along the same philosophy. Like they've built just a great team of not only just you know people who understand the numbers side of it, but also people who are you know passionate about the library and who may not know how to code something, but will help the you know librarians and staff members figure out you know how to make it how to make it work and. I, I love that philosophy that you share, like, you know, it, people who believe in the product or the, the software, you know, can, can build a fantastic company. Yeah. And it's just getting that right. The, the process humming in a way that, um, 
Yeah. So I think we're, yeah. you know, we're, we're, I think we were fortunate too, you know, and that we did <clears throat> go through an acquisition this summer, um, became part of a nonprofit, which I think is, is an incredible, um, I guess not ending, but kind of new start for, uh-huh. for us. Uh, cause we've always been a mission based company. That's not a box we had to check as we became part of a nonprofit, but yeah. um, I think it does, I think it does, um, you know, give me a higher degree of confidence that now that we're part of the library community, that this work we're doing um, has been recognized and, and has a chance to, to stick around and grow. So, um, yeah, it's exciting, exciting time for us. Yeah. Well, Mitchell, where do you see digital access for, for libraries going in the next five years? Well, I mean, I guess I, I guess it would. I guess if I had to, something I said earlier about you know making sure everything feels like open access. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I th- when I talked about our naivety early on, I think one of the first things we realized was that building a great technology was not going to solve the problem. Um, a great technology that still tells you you have to wait to access a digital item still does not make sense. So yeah. you have to go deeper into the process. You have to go back to publishers. You have to get new licensing. Yeah. Um, and I think we've been, you know, we've kind of quietly chipped away at that and, and really made it a thing. Um, you know, our ebook business today is focused mostly on uh, state libraries and state consortiums. Um, yeah, yeah. Where we provide geolocated simultaneous use access to ebooks which means you know we're delivering ebooks the way you get an uber basically if you're in the state of texas you're we're going to know that as soon as you hit the application and yeah you're just going to be looking at books and be able to read them all there's no friction there's no go down this road there's no hey now you got to go to the app store and download an app. We've been very uh, focused on making our technology work in a browser the exact same way it works in a native app. Yes. And de- delivering it through a browser because it removes so many steps from consummating. If you've been lucky enough to get someone's digital attention, you better close the deal. You better have that person inside an ebook within 10 seconds or it's over. Yep. And that's really what we kind of, I mean, we have native apps, but like the idea that you would somehow get someone's attention and then convince them to go on a journey to an app store and download another app and remember what they were searching for. And, you know, just is, is, is just crazy. Crazy. So, <laughs> it's crazy. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, so we've been very careful to focus on, the browser and by combining simultaneous use with the browser with geolocation you essentially remove yeah. all the friction and libraries are willing to pay more i mean you know the, the publishers who are powering that kind of access model are the ones who really deserve the kudos um and you know, we have done our job in, in being able to get those publishers a premium for that access because the libraries will pay premium for that access because it's perpetually available 
in a simple, easy way. There's no management overhead. There's no yeah. meetings about how many holds you should have on something before you order another book. There's no order in multiple copies of something that happens to be popular for a small amount of time. I mean, it just removes so much complexity, not only from the end patron user experience, but also from the library management experience. So, you know, I, you know, I mean, obviously there is a prevailing public library ebook lending universe. Uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime yeah. soon. I just think the whole idea of ebook lending is going to seem silly at some point. So I think our, our, our kind of focus is like how rather than trying to help libraries compete with Amazon on selection, which is a absolutely impossible task. Um, how can we make the libraries really great at something that Amazon can't do or that Apple can't do? And I think the local content is it. So, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, it's a good segue into the music. You know, one of the, you know, Indie Author Project is really the only, and eBooks I would say are really the only place we've been able to invest time as a company in building a real community where we uh -huh. have the authors, we have libraries, we have curators like LJ and Publishers Weekly, um, you know, the authors are compensated, you know, we have a whole royalty program for the books yeah. that come through that and are elevated. We've paid, I think, $70,000 to, to local public library authors this year. Wow. Out of, out of that program. So, I mean, you know, that's compared to overdrive, that seems silly, but I, you know, I talk about it because I'm like, that's the first $70,000 I think any author has ever known has actually come from public library sales. Yeah. So, so it's it's a cool number, even though it's a yeah. small number, it's a cool number. <laughs> it's, it, it's it's fantastic. I, when I when I worked in the library, I can remember local authors reaching out and saying, how, how can we get our book in the library? You know, we want people in the community to, to know about it. And it's just to hear those numbers, it's it's incredible to see kind of where this is gonna go. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a we've got a thing we're doing called the uh, in the author project data collaboration, which I think is is something. Hopefully, it'll get some more wind now that we have some real royalties. Um, should get some more data. But what we're doing is is we're taking the royalty data, and because we know the participating authors, and because we know the regions those authors are in, and because we know the home library of those authors, we can actually attribute those royalties two specific libraries yeah we can say to los angeles public library or san antonio public library you generated four thousand dollars in your local creative economy this year as a result of participating in this program and here are the authors who benefited from that which is also pretty radical that's never really happened yeah. before so i think as as people get there i think you know and of course my um you know, the other motive there is that I believe libraries will want to purchase ebooks where they can make those kind of associations on their own local creative economy. So, assumably, they would spend more money on these indie titles. And the more money they spend on them, the more royalties we generate and put back into that community. So, it really becomes a a, a pretty nice virtuous circle. So, you know, I mean, we're, I guess we've been doing the royalties for probably two and a half, two years now and really only properly for probably about a year. But so the numbers aren't huge yet, but I think 
I think we're watching them in the right way and they're going to tell a really interesting story, I think. Mitchell, how can a library get involved with this? Can they go to indieauthorproject.com and and contact y'all to get to, how can they how can they get started if they want to be part of this? Yeah, I mean we've got we've got two two sites that sort of sit um, one site is is indieauthorproject.com and so for 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 libraries that were were interested in in just sort of the indie author programs that is is the best place to go. Okay. Um, for libraries that are interested in all of the community engagement programs, so that would be the Indie Author Project plus all the other things we do. Yeah. Um, we have a site called createsharediscover.com uh, that is a sort of a, 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 a storytelling site. There's a lot of case studies there, things like that. There's also Perfect. a login area. Um, so that's a good place to go. And our hope is at some point next year, we're going to launch uh, the Indie Music Project, which is going to take a lot of the same um, elements of the Indie Author Project community, the, the contests, um, the compensation for, uh, you know, intellectual property, all of those kind of things. Um, and map it over to music and hoping we're going to launch that with a few large uh, urban public libraries at some point next year. So that's, awesome. that's sort of what we want to do is sort of kind of start to line up um, real communities now that we've proven we can build a robust one around the, the different media that's kind of flowing through the system today. So that's a big part of our next year. This is this is awesome to hear all of this. I'm I'm excited for our listeners to kind of explore some of these options that they have now. Well, Mitchell, this has been great kind of hearing about what y'all are doing and it's exciting to see how our our libraries will adapt. Um I always like to end it with what are you what are you reading or listening to? Well, I'm on a Kurt Vonnegut tear right now. Ah. Um I, I feel, I don't know how I feel about this, but somehow I did not read a Kurt Vonnegut book until about three years ago, which is, wow. seems, seems criminal, but I am reading <laughs> now. So. Uh, um, I just finished Time Quake and I just started um, the Titans of, or Sirens of Titan or Titans of Siren last night. So, um, okay. Yeah, so that's, I'm kind of on that right now. Um, I'm also sort of, third person through my wife we moved out to the mountains of western north carolina okay uh, a couple of years ago and i've just there's an author who writes out here named ron rash who does uh novels uh, that are set in these mountains and haven't been here for a couple of years and gotten to know a lot of the people they're just uh fascinating so i'm kind of getting that one secondhand through my wife now figured that was worth a shout out to um and music wise awesome. Uh, yeah, we've, we're actually, what we're doing out here is opening a music, we have a, it's going to be a tiny festival, tiny music festival venue. So we've been having bands out here, um, I don't know, every other month or so for a while. Uh -huh. And we're starting that, starting that um, officially this spring. So a lot of the bands we've been listening to have been this super interesting genre of um it's like old time music being played by kids. Um, a lot of the kids are uh, travelers, train hoppers. Uh -huh. um, but because of Instagram and YouTube and their talent and songwriting ability, they're getting like tons of attention. So 
it's this incredible phenomenon of these like kind of buskers and travelers that are kind of being turned into real touring musicians. Uh, and we've had several of those bands play out here. And, um, so anyway, I'm really into that. There's a YouTube channel, Gems on VHS, that does a great job um, sort of chronicling and doing um, offstage recordings of a lot of those artists. So it's a good place to check it out. Oh, send send that uh, music festival this way. Yeah, we will. We're getting, we're getting, I think we're going to announce it and start selling our first tickets and stuff in early January. Doggett Gap, uh, Tiny Music and Heritage Festival. And we've got a, yeah, great, great lineup for it. So, cool. Yeah, we're excited. Well, Mitchell, you are doing some amazing things. I'm so grateful that you could join us for the Library is Open podcast. Thank you for sharing some insight and just the awesome things y'all are doing. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And um, I really appreciate it. Any chance to talk about the work we're doing is always a great thing. Yeah. Awesome. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.